right. Welcome back. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Killer Babes. I'm Katie. And I'm Curvy. Nice. And you're listening to? I already said it's Killer Babes. Episode 55. (laughs) Did not know what you were going for there. Oh, right. But it is episode 55. It is. And I have absolutely no updates because my life has not changed in one single way. It is Mm. monotonous in every sense. It is Groundhog's Day every day for a year. Wow, that's terrible. Although it actually was Groundhog's Day the other day. Yeah, and he saw a shadow. Yeah, which means we're going to be miserable for a little longer. Although the weather was like 50 degrees the other day. It was pretty nice. Yeah. Actually, yeah, this next week is going to be up in the 50s again. I know, it is pretty exciting. I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I feel like when I feel the skin, oh, not the skin. When I feel skin, I love it. <laughs> I just can't. I go Gross. nuts. I just, every time I feel the sun on my skin, even if it's not warm outside yet, you know, like if it's still cold, but you feel the sun on your skin, it's like, oh, life is going to be good pretty soon, you know? Yeah. It's just a reminder that it won't last forever. Or I'll, will it? It will. It'll last a little less a while for, for like another month, two months. And it's just going to be rainy for a while. I, f- I always forget about that part. I'm like, oh, winter's over. It's going to be summer. Spring showers. It rains for like two months here. But that's better than some parts. I don't know what that sound was. But that's better than some parts of the United States or country, countries where it rains it all, rain all the time. Oh, well. Not all the time. Or it doesn't rain at all. I would hate that too. Yeah. I don't know which I would dislike more. Well, when it doesn't rain at all, there tends to be fires, like in California, so that's probably not... True, good point. Um, That sucks. So at least we have weather. I mean, I like weather. I'd rather have weather than not, but... <laughs> My name's Katie, and I like weather. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> that's good. Good stuff. It's true. No, but I mean, everybody bio. does to an extent. Yeah, that's the first opening line you always say, like, how about this weather, eh? Like, <laughs> I, I, I slap with the small talk about weather. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so good at it. I oh, cover. the weather this weekend was great. Oh, yesterday's about weather, that huh? precipitation? Yeah. <laughs> so let's be real. Everyone loves weather. Yeah, I guess so. Such a hopeful feeling. Well, do you have any updates? Besides no, that was weather? it. That was you got it. any more weather updates to do with us? me? <laughs> uh, oh, maybe I should just do like a weather corner every week. No, because by the time they listen to it, it'll be completely wrong. Oh, yeah, that's true. You'll be like, there's a 50% chance tomorrow <laughs> we'll be snowing, and it's already April. <laughs> that's true. Well, okay. By the time this comes out, it's going to be March, which is exciting. Mm. Um, March is my actual least favorite month of the year. Really? Yeah, decidedly. Do you have a least favorite month? I feel like it's either January or February, just because it's the in- transition month between really cold and terrible weather. But yeah, that's about it. January, I feel like you're still coming off the high of like the holidays. True. So I don't mind it. February is boring, but it's short. March is still boring, but it's so long and there's nothing in it. So I hate it. But at least it means we're a month closer to. Means spring break's coming up. Not that it means anything this year, but (laughs) anything. Well, yeah, that's true. Yep. No vacations for us. Not on the upcoming horizon. So I guess with that, we'll just, you know, dive in as we do every week. We just dive right in. So the big question this week is what happened to Joan Reish? Hmm, that's true. We got another 
mystery on our hands. Yes, a disappearance, as you could tell from the title. A mysterious disappearance. <laughs> we never usually put that much description in our title. I know. I don't know why. It just fit. I like it. I wonder if people are turned off by a bigger episode title or they like it more. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I feel like really big cases, you don't even really need the title. You just, you just need, the, need name. the name. I did not know about this one, but Me I know neither. it's big in the true crime world, in the mystery cold case world. Yeah. And I thought I heard of a lot of like cold cases in mass, but not. Well, maybe I haven't. You know what? As much as we've been doing this for like two years, I feel like we are still very new to the true crime world. I would agree with that. Which is crazy because we do it a lot, but there's so much to cover. So the question is, what happened to Joan Reish? Her four-year-old daughter Lillian told the neighbor, quote, Mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. On October 24th, 1961, 30-year-old housewife and mother of two children disappeared. Gone. No motive, no leads. And absolutely no trace. A little bit about Joan Reish. She did not have a picture-perfect childhood at all. Born August 4th, 1931 as, as Joan Carolyn Bard to Harold and Josephine Bard in 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. At just nine years old, her parents moved to New Jersey. And Joan was out of the house one day when her house caught on fire. Her parents did not survive. Following their death, she lived with an aunt and uncle who formally adopted her and her name changed to Joan Carolyn Natras. A Boston Herald article from 1993 later reported that Joan had been sexually molested by a close family member. Joan found the transition difficult to adjust, but managed to do pretty well in school, and she went on to get an English literature degree from Wilson College in Pennsylvania. After graduating in 1952, Joan worked in publishing, first as a secretary, and then worked her way up to editorial assistant at Harcourt, Brace, and World, and later Thomas Y. Crowell Company. In 1956, Joan met her husband, Martin, at a Harvard football game. Fun. <laughs> Why did you say it like that? You hate football. Yeah, but I feel like it's a big name. Because they didn't have Harvard. Oh, well, no, I've never heard of it. They had. A, they didn't have NFL back then, right? So this was I as think they did. big they of a football game did. they had. Did they? NFL? When did NFL start? What was the Super Bowl number? Oh, it started in the 20s. Yeah, okay, it's well, been around for a long Still time. big around here in New England. Harvard is a name brand school so <laughs> i'm sure the football team is rocking i mean do you think though aren't they like nerds can't they like not be sports no i don't know i think they're pretty good i'm just kidding oh I'm just kidding. I'm just i was kidding. about to look up their stats right now i, I was like i think <laughs> no, they're that was okay. like a joke i don't know about now like they're but... brainiacs they can't play football that's a stereotype that we should break <laughs> okay everyone out there we should break it well anyways joan and martin hit it off both being brooklyn born and martin was an executive at one of the same companies that joan worked with. Joan left her career as an editorial assistant at the publishing company in New York City to settle down with Martin and start a family. Living in Ridgefield, Connecticut, the couple had their first child, Lillian. And then two years later, they had a son who they named David. In April 1961, they moved to a modern home on Old Bedford Road in Lincoln, Massachusetts, right outside Boston. It was a pretty nice area and it was secluded, surrounded by the forest, so it definitely had some privacy. Joan became active in the League of Women's Voters while Martin was an executive with the Fitchburg Paper Company. Joan mentioned to others about maybe becoming a teacher when the children got older. Quote, I think they were extremely happy. They had a beautiful home, two lovely children. They were congenial companions as far as I know, said Joan's foster mother. 
Alice Natras, who had long divorced her ex-husband and the man who was said to have molested Joan. On October 24th, 1961, Martin left home at 6.50 a.m. to go on a business trip to New York for an overnight stay in Manhattan. He took his car to the Boston Logan Airport and his flight left at 8 a.m. He left his wife, Joan Reich, in bed at home with their two children, Lillian, who was four years old at the time, and David, who was two years old. The morning started off eventfully uneventful. Joan made breakfast as usual and then dropped David off at the neighbor's, Barbara Barker, around 9.30 a.m. Then she drove her blue 1951 Chevrolet into Bedford with her four-year-old daughter, Lillian. They were headed to Joan's dentist appointment. It turned into a nice little girl's day out, GDO, if you will, and she cashed a check while out. And the two went for a quick shopping trip to a department store before returning home for lunch. During the time frame they were out, the milkman and the mailman made their regular deliveries to their house. When they came back home, Joan picked up David from Barbara's a little after 11 a.m. A delivery dry cleaner came to the house and picked up Martin's suits. Joan then got changed into something more comfortable, a blouse, a sweater, a charcoal-colored wool skirt, and blue sneakers with white piping. Then she made lunch, they ate, and she put two-year-old David down for his daily nap. At about 1 p.m., Barbara came over to bring her four-year-old son, Douglas, over for a play date with Lillian. The homes on Old Bedford Road were spaced far apart, and they were fenced off with large trees, giving each resident some privacy, but they were close enough that the neighbors could drop their children off easily. You could walk down the street to the other ones pretty quickly. At 1.55 p.m., Joan brought Douglas and Lillian back to Barbara's house and left them on the swing set and said she would be back soon. She returned to the house where David was still napping at home. Around 2.15, Barbara saw Joan wearing a trench coat and carrying what she thought was something red in her arms, hurrying from her blue sedan to the garage. Mrs. Barker didn't think much of it, assuming that she may have been trying to catch David as he ran away. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Joan Reich. What took place next is filled with mystery and lots of conspiracy. At approximately 4.15 that afternoon, Lillian left the neighbor's house and arrived back home. Just moments later, she ran back to Barbara Baker's home. Douglas's mother opened the front door as Lillian, through her tears, screamed that her mother was gone and that there was, quote, red paint all over the kitchen. She also said that David was crying in his crib and probably needed his diaper changed. Quite alarmed, Barbara hurried quickly over accompanied Lillian back home and was met with a shocking scene of a house filled with not paint, but blood. Barbara called the police at 4.33 p.m. Five minutes later, Sergeant Mike McHugh arrived on the scene. He found a small overturned table and bloody smears all over the kitchen floors and walls. The wastebasket that was usually kept under the sink was now sitting in the middle of the floor. In it was the telephone, which was torn from its place. It originally had been mounted to the wall. McHugh's first thought was suicide, so he searched the house, finding the wall splattered with small spots of blood that formed a small pool of blood on the floor. There was a small drop of blood on the first step leading upstairs, two more drops at the top of the stairs. Eight drops of blood were found in the master bedroom, and one drop was found near a window in David's nursery, where the toddler remained untouched. A trail of blood led McHugh from the kitchen outside to Joan's car, which was still parked in the driveway. The car itself was stained with blood in three different areas, the right rear fender, 
the left side of the hood near the windshield, in the center of the truck. There was a wire hanger left on the roof of the car. Sergeant McHugh searched the outside of the house. There was no sign of Joan. Sergeant McHugh then called for backup for a larger search. Barbara called the Fitchburg Paper Company, who then called Martin in New York to inform him of what happened, and Martin got on the next flight back home. It was 5 p.m. when police gave a description of Joan to the dispatcher to call the local hospitals to see if a woman who fit her description had checked in. Nothing turned up. Strangely, there were no bloody footprints found anywhere, inside or outside of the Reich residence. The police could not determine where the bleeding had started. At 6.05 p.m., a detective was called to the Reich home. When the crime scene was examined in depth, the results were intriguing. The small overturned table that was found in the hallway leading from the kitchen into the living room was usually set in the kitchen underneath the wall-mounted phone, the same phone that had been ripped from the wall, tossed into the wastebasket. Detectives found a telephone book nearby, opened to the page where emergency contacts should have been listed, but no contacts were written in. Phone records showed that no calls had been made. On the wall beside the phone, investigators found an unidentified bloody thumbprint. Investigators believed that the blood had most likely come from a superficial wound. Three bloody fingerprints were found in total in the house, but it was unknown if they were Jones because police didn't have her prints to compare them to. Over the upcoming years, over 5,000 people would be fingerprinted in an attempt to find a match, but there would be no match. However, a chemist was able to find that the blood in the home did match Joan's blood type. An empty liquor bottle was found in the trash that should have been under the sink and some beer bottles. Martin said that he and Joan had finished the liquor bottle last night, but he did not know where the new beer bottles came from that were also in the trash. The couple had supposedly had beers with some friends the weekend before, but Martin claimed his wife always emptied the trash can when it was full. Martin also doubted that the beers were from her, as Joan was not a day drinker. There was also a roll of paper towels on the floor, and investigators noted that it appeared someone had used a wad of them to what looked like an attempt to clean up the blood. A pair of coveralls and underwear belonging to David were found in the kitchen. They were bloody, and they may have also been used to clean up the blood. The coveralls looked as if it had been pressed to the floor by a heavy object, like a body, for a period of time. The trench coat that Barbara Barker had seen her in earlier in the day was left behind, and it was believed that Joan was wearing a plainer cloth coat. Joan's purse was left behind, and police estimated that she would have had less than $10 left after going shopping earlier that morning. Nothing super weird appeared to be out of place, and nothing had been stolen, ruling out a robbery, most likely. Other than the small spots of blood around the house, a tipped-over table, and a phone pulled off the wall, the house was pretty much untouched and spotless. If there was an abduction, maybe Joan knew the person because it didn't look like a violent struggle had ensued. Police went door-to-door asking neighbors if they had seen Joan, and some reported that they had. The initial theory from investigators was that Joan had been abducted, but now news of her disappearance spread throughout Lincoln. Police received many eyewitness statements who came forward, which only complicated this theory. The neighbor Barbara Barker told police Joan was walking or running with her arms outstretched towards her car, which was parked in the driveway, at about 2.15 p.m. The neighbors thought Joan had been playing a game, perhaps chasing her child. At first, the neighbor thought they saw her carrying something red in one hand. She then turned back and walked towards her house. 
It later came out that the neighbor may have maybe seen something red around or in front of Joan through the trees in front of the Riche house. Some believe that perhaps maybe Joan was blindfolded, which would explain why she was walking kind of awkwardly with her arms outstretched. Another neighbor stated that at about 3.20 p.m., she saw a gray Oldsmobile sedan parked behind Joan's own car. A couple of other neighbors reported seeing a blue two-toned car in the area, and one witness said it was parked on the Sunnyside Road around 2.45 that day. The milkman said he saw a car with a similar description five days before in Joan's driveway. And one person claimed they saw a man get out of the car, cut a few branches from a nearby bush, and put them into the car. Which sounds weird, but have you have you ever, like, cut holly from somebody else's? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I know. I, so my friend's mom, actually, when she was gardening for her own house area, she just cut people's trees and flowers and, like, propagated them in her yard. So <laughs> I don't think it's super weird, I guess. Didn't you almost try to dig up a tree from, like, Walmart once? Okay, well, it had closed, and it wasn't Walmart. It wasn't it the Walmart was. property. It was a property close to it that had closed in the area. And, yes, I had been eyeing those bushes because <laughs> so yes. it, it was on sale. Like, the whole property lot was on sale. And you know when they build <laughs> new buildings, they destroy all of it anyway and then plant their own shrubbery. So, yeah, shrubs are expensive, shrubbery. people. According to <laughs> I can't believe it's not fiction.com, this strange man was allegedly cleared by police the same day of Joan's disappearance. In one account said the following, quote, 9.58 p.m., a dispatcher at the local cab company responded to the call for information stating that a man had come in to send a telegram to his brother requesting money and was acting very strange. This man's description was similar to the man seen cutting branches on Route 2A. 10.15 p.m., another person reported seeing a blue sedan on Sunnyside Lane near Route 2A at 2.45 p.m. 10.35 p.m., a sergeant from the local police department determined the owner of the blue sedan seen at 2.45 p.m. and cleared him of suspicion, end quote. Okay, I, one, love the neighborhood interaction here because you best believe that if I go missing, I hope all my neighbors in the surrounding area know exactly where I was last seen, which is usually speeding down my road to get home. <laughs> and I already know that some of my neighbors track whose cars are whose because one of my neighbors actually told me one time... <laughs> When you Ooh, got you're putting a her car, shit on blast. <laughs> we know when you got your car or something. I don't know if you were driving someone else's car, your mom's car, or I don't know what it was, but they were like, I don't recognize that car. And I was like, oh, that's my friend Katie, like the redhead. And they're like, oh, I know that I know that person. Like they've never met you, but they Wait, knew who you wasn't... were. Mm-mm. Oh, because I was gonna say she would have had an adverse <laughs> reaction to yeah, that. Yeah, no, 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 no. No, my other neighbor. And then oh. one time one of our friend's girlfriend's brothers somebody picked them up to go to yeah. the airport and none of my neighbors recognized the car and told me like they texted me and said <laughs> hey like there's a sketchy car oh, outside you your house know they're, they are going to know if some weird yeah. shit goes down so honestly you know i don't care how noisy no nosy they are <laughs> i care how noisy they are. i don't care how nosy they are just like make sure if i disappear they tell the police oh yeah all that information and i know they have like log books and shit oh like, and everyone has a ring so like yeah they'd be able to go like section by section down the street to they see can what like circumnavigate my disappearance literally there's like probably 10 things tracking you right now well that's why i post on social so people know where i am like hello find me it's not because i'm narcissistic it's yeah. because i want someone to be able to find me if i go missing why i put the timestamp filter on snapchat like 10 55 actually is that shop. why you have your red receipts on 
or that's I just put them on so that it would help me like to remember to answer my text because I figured if I knew the other person could see I read it it would help me but I think that is a good idea if you want people to keep track of you because yeah they'll know the minute you like had or somebody had your phone the last minute I read my text or when the killer or abductor or kidnapper read my text Mm. Hmm. yeah i agree with the nosy neighbor situation i feel like there's pros and cons to it as long as they're not like in my window like looking through my blinds keep being nosy keep checking up on me those are the kind of neighbors you want ultimately yeah several motorists also reported seeing a woman walking along the median strip on route 128 in waltham and nearby was the cambridge reservoir investigators had the water searched in hopes that it would turn up a body or some clues but again nothing was found Another sighting was at about 2.15 p.m. to 2.45 p.m. On the same afternoon, Joan disappeared. A caller described seeing a woman who matched Joan's description walking along Route 2A West, which was approximately 200 yards from her house. She was headed towards Concord with a handkerchief around her head, tied at the chin. She was reported to have been hunched over like she was cold and shivering. Between 3.15 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., Another witness said they saw somebody who matched the same description, but this caller said the woman had blood on both of her legs. She was allegedly walking on Route 128, and she was described as being dazed. The caller recalled her movements, saying she moved, quote, in a plodding manner with her head down, holding her stomach. There was another sighting at around 4.30 p.m. of a woman walking south on Route 128 near Trapolo Road. The witness said that the front and back of her legs were covered in a dark substance that at the time she thought was mud, walking with her head slumped forward in both hands in the pockets of her coat. With all of these sightings around Route 128, it's important to note that the road was actually under construction at this time. In all of the reported sightings, the witnesses described the woman they saw wearing a loose-fitting gray coat that came down to her knees and a handkerchief tied under the chin. And that was a peculiar description at the time, right? Because was it fashion or was she trying to hide her face? What's up with the handkerchief? It's interesting that all the witnesses saw the woman wearing the exact same clothing and acting in the exact same manner. Head down, hunched over, not really walking, but more kind of shuffling along. So was this woman Joan? Investigators searched extensively for this woman that many had claimed to see. They checked the surrounding area and each and every hospital. They were never able to confirm or deny if this was, in fact, Joan. So Serene Gearson, a 40-year-old reporter for the local newspaper The Fence Viewer, found a very weird clue and it's like happenstance that she found it at the local library. She was browsing through a book about Brigham Young's 27th wife who had mysteriously disappeared. Also, 27th wife? Is that real? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are you sure she's not 27 years name? old uh yeah i don't know it was the 60s so i'm gonna google that while you talk okay let me know if that is true because if she's the only one who mysteriously disappeared or if all yeah, um, of his wives have disappeared are we gonna look into that or yeah okay i'll wait for you actually yeah referred to herself as the 27th wife whoa she wait. was actually the 52nd woman shut the fuck up okay i'm gonna look into this Okay, so this is what I found out about Brigham Young. He was a polygamist. Oh. Hence, 55 wives. So he he probably had 20 at a time. 
and then swapped them. So round one was like 21. Yeah, there was always was like a bunch at once. He was in the Latter-day Saints movement. <gasps> in total, it's actually really blurry. It's 55 or less because... Wait, so how many children did he have? <laughs> 59. Wow. 59 children with 16 I thought women. 12 was a big number. No. 59. 59. Um, that's nuts i mean he's a man so i guess you can have children every day if you want if you're a man that is true super backward standards for that yeah, i mean he could have the science works literally 200 and yeah i mean he could have multiple would never day. affect his body um uh, no fucked up yeah it's kind of crazy um so we took advantage of that 59 kids Got it. interesting well anyway there you have it on the checkout card for the book was Joan Reish's signature, dated September 16th. So a month before Joan had disappeared, she checked out the book Into Thin Air, which is about a woman who leaves behind her own blood, a blood-soaked towel to be exact, which was then used to stage a crime scene, and she goes missing. This book almost paralleled the crime scene found at the Reish household. Hastily, the town's library committee assembled a group of volunteers who compiled a list of about 25 books Rich had apparently read that summer using her signature from the library cards. So for our young audience, or YA, and that's library talk for young adult genre, back in the day before there were electronic library cards or digital library cards, there was a library card or library ticket that was literally a piece of paper stuck inside the book and people would sign and date it. And that's how librarians would record checkouts by date, title, or even borrower in this case. So a lot of the books they found she had checked out had very similar genres. They all had to do with murders in a missing persons case. The Hunt for Richard Thropp was another one of the books, and it's about a schoolboy who disappeared on purpose. Another was Death of the Heart, a novel about an orphan who disappeared. So based on all this information, the reporter theorized that Joan had staged a crime to help her disappear. And then this caused many other theories besides abduction to begin. In some other accounts, the evidence found in Risha's home state, the actual blood loss at the crime scene was not that much, about one pint to a half a pint. So to put it in perspective, the average adult has about 10 pints of blood in their body, right? Roughly one pint is given when you donate blood at American Red Cross, which mine is next week. So if you don't donate, go donate, sign up. It's very easy and safe, especially during COVID-19. They're very safe about it. Just a little plug for American Red Cross. And other accounts of the crime scene, however, dispute that blood amount. But regardless, the police could not determine where the blood had started. And the blood left at the scene did not tell them if Joan had left on her own accord. People theorized Joan, a mother and housewife, got bored with her marital life after leaving her successful publishing career in New York City. Maybe she grew restless with everyday life, which caused her to stage her own disappearance and start anew somewhere else. Friends and family say that she was a devoted mother and wife. Sabre Morton, a college friend of Joan Reish, who lived in Lexington, said, quote, she had never seen Reish happier than she was in Lincoln. She went on to say, I think Joan is almost certainly dead. She would never have left her family on her own accord, end quote. By all accounts, those who knew her said that Joan was a complete, competent individual and would never dream of abandoning her husband or children. And honestly, let's just say that Joan had planned her own disappearance. Don't you think that as a mother, she would have done it in a less traumatizing manner? <laughs> I mean, her own four-year-old daughter is the one who found her, well, found the blood, and she found it alone. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's not great to do. 
The other theory is that an intruder was in the house when Joan was outside, and Joan was the victim of a terrible murder, and her body was now hidden somewhere. The witness statements about the two-tone blue car seen in the area supports this theory. As does the crime scene with the overturned table and the phone ripped off the wall. This may back up the theory and could mean a struggle had occurred. Also, the blood trail ending in the driveway could mean she was pulled into a waiting car and taken away. And then another theory is that she just had an unfortunate accidental end. Maybe she fell into a pit at a construction site along Route 28 because, as we know, it was under construction at the time. Maybe she couldn't get out of it. Some people have this theory. They say maybe she was unknowingly buried under the asphalt of Route 28 as construction and the roadway work continued. Um, This theory could be true, but it still doesn't give a motive for why she was walking along Route 28 in the first place. However, in my opinion, there's no way this is possible. I don't think anyone would not see a body in a ditch before they start backfilling it. That's just my opinion. Maybe they did things differently back then. But I don't think so. Seems fishy to me. Some explanations aren't theories so much, but rumors that have built up over time. For example, some say Joan was having an affair with the man who was spotted in the two-tone blue car. Joan wanted to maybe end the affair, which angered the unknown men and man who then tried to kill her. Others say that maybe she was pregnant and had a botched abortion or suffered a miscarriage. That would explain why she was spotted by witnesses having blood running down her legs as she's walking through the street. One thread from Reddit user Wiki Bears fan? Wiki Bears fans? I don't know what that means. Sorry. Um, they posted three years ago and said, quote, It seems like she sent the kids to Barbara's house in kind of a hurry. She was doing yard work. What if she was having horrible stomach cramps, needed to go to the bathroom, and then she had a miscarriage and, from an unknown pregnancy? She goes to the kitchen to call an ambulance because 911 didn't exist back then, so she would have had to look up the emergency phone numbers page in her book, but nothing was written there. She falls down, rips the phone out of the wall in the process, tries to use the table to get back up. She falls and it falls, smearing the blood dripping from her onto the floor. She gets the fetus and rushes into the yard. At this point, she's put on a trench coat too because she's bleeding and probably didn't have on any underwear anymore. By this time, she's lost a lot of blood and is disoriented. So she just takes off to a hospital, doctor, etc. She never makes it. Somewhere along the route, she passed out and bled out. Maybe her body was found and not cataloged properly. Maybe it was never located. The blood would have attracted animals faster. I don't know. Just my theory. End quote. So that was all they're posting. Many users did agree with this and said that it made the most sense to them in their opinion. On the same thread, user Monkey Fudge Hair, amazing, amazing, posted, quote, This seems most plausible, but what if this was a botched abortion? Say the doctor shows up to the, do the procedure and it goes bad. She tries calling an ambulance, but the doctor doesn't let her she, because it's illegal. She runs, he chases her, and she finally passes out. Doctor takes the body. Performing abortions was illegal at that time, so it might explain why the body was never found. If she did just wander off and die from blood loss, her body should be nearby. I'm not sure what that neighborhood looks like, though. End quote. I mean, and there is forest around there, but in my opinion, like, it's a very residential town. Like, I feel like it would be hard for a body to be dumped somewhere in that town and go unnoticed for however many years have passed at this point. 40, 50, 60, I don't know what year it is. Yeah, they said 
bodies in the area that had popped up over time. They kept thinking, okay, this is her, this is her. And then it just still hasn't been. Jeez, how many her. bodies do you think just pop up? I don't know. I don't know what the going <laughs> the going average for pop-ups are. <laughs> Ooh, that's not funny. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, though. It's also, like, if people don't know what Lincoln Mass is, it's, like, it's a fairly affluent, like, white, upper-middle-class neighborhood, just to set the scene. It seems like it would, a lot of people would know a lot of people, like, you would know your neighbors pretty well, which it seems like that was the case here. So, I don't know. It just seems hard for me to believe that she would have just wandered off somewhere in town and never be found or reported. I don't know. Well, you're not the only one that's stumped. What stumped some other users were the beers that were found. So the same thread user Grace underscore two, T-O-O, not T-W-O or T-O, (laughs) T-O-O, chimes in and writes, quote, I have an observation that if the abortion miscarriage explanation is correct, may account for the beer. In the 1970s, my mother had a hysterectomy and was actually prescribed beer to help restore her iron level. I remember it seeming funny at the time, all the funnier because she didn't like beer and had to force herself to drink it. If Joan had lost blood as the result of an abortion or miscarriage, she may have received advice to drink beer or known to do so as a folk remedy. Do records ever indicate what type of beer it was? Apparently, dark beers like stout contain more iron than light beers, end quote. I'm not buying that one. I think everyone should just drink a beer now to make sure your iron levels are good. On the off chance that that is a thing. I do feel like my iron levels are low because I'm always tired, so maybe I should drink more beer. I feel like if you're losing blood, you're not supposed to drink alcohol. Right, because they tell you when you get tattoos not to consume alcohol. Yeah. Because it thins your blood. Right. That's the whole thing. What kind of doctor would tell you to drink beer if you're... I don't know. Maybe there's something behind it. Maybe at the time, the beer that when it was made that way contained a lot of iron. I feel like maybe it does have iron, but it probably has other things that aren't good. (laughs) But you know what? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor either, and this is not a medical podcast, so. No, it's not. You tell us. It isn't. Let us know. While the user Monkey Fudge Hair, great username, (laughs) is correct that in 1962, abortions in America were mostly illegal before Roe versus Wade, unless there were a few exceptional circumstances applied, for instance, incest, rape, or serious risk to the mother's death, should the child be carried to term. Massachusetts at the time would have wanted a medical certification that the unborn child was a threat to the mother's health or life. Today, law enforcement can distinguish between venous blood and blood from a miscarriage or abortion. But police probably didn't use that sort of forensics back in the early 60s. Yeah. They didn't have any forensics, basically. Jeesh. Yeah, I don't know what they had. But it's definitely not what they have today. They had a microscope... And tape to get fingerprints. Did they have to, like, draw the fingerprints by hand? They didn't have CODIS. Did they? They must have had ink. They had ink back then. (laughs) Nope, they had quills and... (laughs) Okay, I think the 60s were not thinking of the same time period. I mean, this is like the Stone Age, right? No. Oh. Well, the police forensics back then were only able to match the blood type that Joan had, which was the common type O type. So if you believe this particular theory, it it seems unlikely that Joan would have scheduled her abortion on a crazy busy day where she had a morning full of errands and the same day that the milkman and dry cleaning were scheduled to come by. Yeah, you don't schedule your abortion on the same day the milkman comes. Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. I mean, you're going to know that it should be another day, a wide open day. Right? So why would it take place also in the smack dab of the middle of the afternoon when literally anyone could have walked in? The neighbor 
the kids, like, I, I don't know. Or perhaps the mystery car was the doctor who came to do the house call. But then again, the same problem. Why would she have a doctor come in the middle of the day to perform a secretive surgery? People against this theory argue that there would have been blood in the bathroom, which is a fair point to make. Yeah. Others think that the dentist appointment she went to was actually a cover story and perhaps she sought out an abortion. That's where she went with her, her child and then went home and had some complications. One neighbor explicitly stated that Joan was not the sort of woman to have male suitors or neighbors. Joan was described as being a devoted wife and a loving mother. And I can't imagine that a neighbor would cover up a fact like that, that she was having male suitors or visitors over from time to time because she had disappeared at this point and was presumably dead. So yeah, you'd think you'd want to help the case if anything at this point. Exactly. Unless, I don't know, unless you had a connection with a husband that and you didn't want people to know about her because you were close with the husband. You don't want him to be embarrassed. But I, I mean, that would be, that wouldn't be a good reason. Who knows? There's the last theory or rumor that floats around that it was the neighbor, Barbara Barker, and her son who actually killed or slash arranged for Joan's death and then buried her body on a land piece that they owned in Lexington, Massachusetts. And it goes back to a purchase deed that was dated November 1974 that adds an odd section of land to their existing property before any construction on land had begun. Now, you could dive in all day into the what-ifs, the maybes, but again, to reiterate, these are just theories and rumors. I also don't think I even vibe with the botched abortion theory because I feel like it only stems only stems from the fact that people saw blood on her legs when she was walking down the street. And it's like, so? <laughs> You're going to draw abortion from that and run with it? I don't think you can do that. Plus, a lot of people were saying she was like hunched over holding her stomach. So the blood could have just been coming from anywhere from yeah, the stomach area. Yeah, she was stabbed area. or assaulted or kidnapped or something maybe she was beat up yeah who knows the the only fact that we know is that joan reesh's body was never found mm -hmm. and there are pretty much no suspects in her disappearance at all martin reesh was questioned by investigators but was cleared of any involvement in her disappearance the alibis for martin the mailman and the milkman were airtight meaning the men had nothing to do with her disappearance they had a solid alibi. Some neighbors had suspicions about a man named Robert Frost Foster. Foster worked for the National Park Service and had been going door to door to talk about a project to keep them to keep the town's historical appearance. Some of the neighborhood women felt Foster made them a little bit uncomfortable. It came up that Foster had visited Joan's house on September 25th, a month before her disappearance. But Foster's alibi on October 24th, 1961, the day of her disappearance, also checked out as his supervisor vouched that they had gone out to lunch at around 1 p.m. that day and Foster then had a property appraisal at 3 p.m. Have you ever had a door-to-door -door sales experience, whether you were the one at the door or you were the one answering the door? First of all, I will do everything in my power to avoid ever being in a situation where I have to go door-to-door -to, -door to do anything. <laughs> that sounds like... It's not as bad as you think. No, I think it would be. I've done it. I've done it numerous times. I was a Girl Scout, so I had to go door to door selling my cookies. Loser. Don't put up the L on your forehead. Listen, <laughs> I, I was a top Girl Scout seller. I do wish that was a thing right now because I wish a Girl Scout. Right, the I can't right find now. them at all, but you can buy them online. But about it's like a homeless shelter in New York yeah. or something. Yeah, but it's it. nice that you can buy them online now. But I also had to sell. <laughs> 
poinsettias for swim. You mean to poinsettias? Go on, yeah, poinsettias, poinsettias, whatever. And I had like a whole shtick. Like I would go up, say my thing, and write off for swim. Yeah, because you had school? to fundraise. No, in college, oh. you could tell within the first five seconds if you had caught someone and they were interested. And if they were oh interested God, in the I bit, you could get them to buy it. Oh, but God. I've had when we had to sell the the plants, I had people. Oh no, you know, I don't have anywhere to put them. And I said, Oh, like some people donate them to local churches because it's the season of, you know, oh, like giving and stuff. Bleh. And so how can I also said, Oh, some people donate them to nursing homes as well. And no good person could look me in the eye after they had said no once and then turn down. It was like five bucks or something. Oh. So I was like, You can buy them and then pick them up, or we can deliver them straight but to the nursing home. Did people have cash? Or I guess you went to like adults people's houses yeah i honestly gave them oh i don't have cash right now oh well we can come back what time would be good for you i got them hook line and sinker i consistently would come up with something they could say no five times and on the sixth one they literally were paying me to just leave them the fuck alone but hey i was also the top poinsettia seller and helped other people raise money i raised like two thousand bucks so it didn't go to you no but it Kind of did because oh, it let me go on the trip. But then also, oh, oh my God, most embarrassing thing. The year before that, when we didn't sell the plants, my friend and I, I was actually just mentioning this to her the other day. We took cookies from the school's cafeteria and sold them, bagged them, and sold them. That's so bad. Hey, we opened the door, right? This guy opens the door. Hi, would you like to buy cookies to support the blah, blah, blah? And it was for it was for swimming. He's like, I'm a, a chef at the college. I know. Yeah. No way. Dead shit. Oh. He, he goes, I baked though. <laughs> I was so we turned around. We ran. We didn't even say like, okay, thank you for your time. Like, no problem. We ran and was like, no. you think he's gonna recognize us? Like, oh shit. Oh, oh wait, one more <laughs> last one. I've got a lot. <laughs> this guy ran. I thought away. door to door things were like dead in like 2000. No, like I've kept them alive, just solely myself. Okay. <laughs> but... Well, can you stop? Because I hate when people come to my door. <laughs> Some guy salesman came to my door. I had to have been in my teens, like 13, 14 maybe. And he... Oh, so your home, home. Yeah, my home, home with my mom. And we answered the door and he he comes in and he's like, can I can I just tell you about this? He'll give you a discount. And my mom, I guess, felt bad for him. I was like, sure, what the hell? Like, come on in. So he's sitting on our couch and he had like a vacuum cleaner with him. Mm. So it was legit. He wasn't just like a random man. He was good because he had- Oh, well, he was a cleaner. random man just with a vacuum. Right. But it made it like more <laughs> legit, you know? I don't know. But <laughs> it was supposed to be this, this state-of-the-art brand new vacuum cleaner that could clean mattresses. So mm. my mom legit I think said, I remember this like type of- selling of this vacuum for mattresses. You think so? It was yeah. supposed I to be amazing. my sister's like old boyfriend did that and he would no like do way. it for us, like practice it. Yes, I remember that. Like you clean the mattress yeah, and yeah, like yeah. skin, dead skin yeah. cells get Yeah, and out. you could yes. like see it. Yeah. So my mom was like, oh yeah, sure. Like I'll definitely buy it, but I'm going to need to try it out first. So she went upstairs and did both our mattresses, gave it back and was like, see you, have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't wow. buy the poor man's vacuum. Oh my God, she's up there for like half an hour and you're just yeah. with the guy like, oh, I'm sure she'll be back down soon. She's taking the sheets <laughs> off. She's like, I'm going to get in here. I legit was just staring at the man because he's not going to try to sell it to a 14-year-old. Like, what's he going to say? Like, oh yeah, like this is low payment, 20 bucks a month. You got allowance? Like, no. So it's like, what's an investment? It's <laughs> yeah, like, tell me what the scheme is, the pyramid. So where do you start? How does it get to the top? Damn, that's funny. Yeah, and then just pushed him out of our house and we never saw him again yeah she's like this works great i'm all set thanks she's Bye. Like, they should be good for another 20 years <laughs>
But that's all I have. Okay. Besides the, you know, Jehovah Witnesses every now and then. But that's it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Everyone's had that. Yeah. I don't like it. Please, I don't, don't disrupt my day. I just like to not have to act like I'm interested. Yeah, honestly, no. Now that I'm older and I don't know why it's because I'm older, I have such bad, like, about of anxiety. If oh, someone yeah. rings the doorbell and I don't know oh, who yeah. it is who's coming, I'm so happy I got ring, which is not <laughs> yeah. an ad, but I'm yeah. just so happy because now I physically don't have to go and I can just check it. No, I know. I've seen so many like funny TikToks of like millennials who like yeah. people ring the doorbell and they're like, get on the floor. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, <it's> right. <laughs> they're like, dad, what's going on? Who's at the door? And everyone's like hiding. Like, <laughs> I feel that. They're I like, feel get the that. baseball bat. I don't know. And then they just like go on their app, they check it, and they're like, oh, it's just the neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel it too. And you know what? Whatever. We're allowed to be sketched out. So. Yeah, it's a sketchy I time. Think I think a lot of old people are like, oh, you millennials, like, come on. Get, but it's like, mm, if anything, learn from our podcast, learn from this exact case. Maybe she answered the doorbell and yeah. someone abducted her. Like, I think I have that's a right. rumor. That's there's no fact based on no, that. No, but there's not really fact in any of this, but. I mean, it totally depends on, like, where you – it depends on a bunch of different stuff. But don't make somebody feel bad for not wanting to go to their door and answer it, especially, like, if you're a young woman living alone. Yeah, if you're a young woman living alone. Yeah, you know what? Be you smart. Know, you don't know people's circumstances. That's all I'm saying. So stop selling poinsettias <laughs> door to door. I'm done doing door – that's in the past, hopefully. I'm done doing door to door sales. <laughs> hope so, too. We'll see, though, on the horizon. I mean, maybe it'll increase because everyone's at home. Maybe door-to-door sales have actually increased due to but COVID-19. But you're not supposed to – but nobody wants to be face-to-face with anyone. Yeah, but you can open the door and I can stand and yell my – From the front yard. You're yeah. like, hi, I'm selling poinsettias. Have you heard the great news of the $19.99 <laughs> deal? It's just $19.99. Have you heard the month. great news of the poinsettias? Okay, but back to the story. Anyway, yeah, sorry. We got carried away. Hmm. So the most common suspect people lean towards in this case is the man who was collecting branches outside her house – who drove who drove the two-toned car it's unclear if police cleared him but it seemed bizarre that he was harvesting branches but maybe not maybe they're pretty martin was asked about a blue car that might have been in his driveway that day he said he did not know anyone with a blue car if this man was responsible for harming joan she probably either escaped from him or he let her out of her car out of his car Either way, when witnesses saw a woman who matched her description wandering around, she would have been shocked or drugged and assaulted. Maybe she died in his car after losing blood or the individual caught up to her, and that's when she vanished off the side of the road. Whether this man was involved could be causation or correlation. Because causation does not equal correlation, as we all know. But we may never know the answer. It's sad to say, but it's 2021 at this point, and this happened in the early 60s. What's sad is all these witnesses saw a woman, whether it was Joan or not, bleeding, clearly not doing okay, and they just drove by or just saw her from their window and just continued about their day. Like, no one stopped to help her, which is weird. If you if you can see a woman well enough to know she's bleeding, like, down her legs and she's hunched over, wouldn't you <laughs> be like, And this is supposed hey, to be a small okay? town. Like, everyone's yeah, supposed to kind of know is. each other, so... It, that really blows my mind that out of all these witnesses, nobody stopped. No, that's super suspicious to me, too, especially that it's, like, 1960s. Yeah, right? Like, people weren't fearful in the 60s, not really. Like, you, 
I'm yeah, so, you so send surprised. your kids out for like days on end, and you didn't Why have cell phones. Why wouldn't someone go out and be like, "Ma'am, are you okay?" Right. That's that's what really blows my mind out of this whole ending. I think. Yeah, and I don't even know what that would mean. Like, what would it mean that multiple people saw her and didn't ask her if she was okay? That they had really shitty. They were just citizens. Mean? I don't know. Or like they just maybe they were like suspicious of outsiders in that neighborhood and they thought she was an outsider i don't they didn't recognize her yeah i don't know yeah maybe they did she did have the handkerchief on her face so that's they true. probably didn't recognize her maybe they were scared because they saw the blood i don't know but kind of sad the town of lincoln offered a 500 reward the police department offered one and then the boston record american a boston newspaper now known as boston herald ever heard of it they offered a $5,000 reward for information in the disappearance of Joan Reish, dead or alive. Unfortunately, no leads ever came after the initial investigation. Martin Reish continued to live in the same house, raising David and Lillian, until 1975. The National Park Service then bought the home. Reish then bought another house in the same area. The part of Old Bedford Road where the house once stood is still there, but it's inaccessible to cars. Martin Reich never had his wife legally declared dead and did not talk about his missing wife. On the one occasion that he did talk about her, he said he believed she was still alive. He said maybe she had suffered from amnesia or had a mental break and was still out there but couldn't find her way back home. Now this seems unlikely because Joan had no known history of mental illness. So sometimes he got prank calls, which is just terrible, but Martin never changed his phone number just on the off chance that Joan called. Can I just say, I do think it is kind of interesting that he thinks his wife is still alive or like he still holds out hope towards the end of his life. He still thought that he she was alive. I don't know. That's kind of interesting to me. It is weird too. I, I don't think it was in here, but the police interviewed him like shortly after when he landed and got back from New York and came and, and found out what was happening. And he, he mentioned his wife, but he mentioned her in past tense, which a lot of people picked up on and thought that, that was like a clue because he said something along the lines that she was nice or she was caring. Kind of weird because usually you're supposed to be in grief and that's the point where they realize when you say is – you know, yeah, and like she like, is, oh, she is great, was. and then they realize like, oh, was, but yeah. he just said was, but I don't know how big of a, you know, yeah, I feel like you that can't played. put weight on that. I mean, it's interesting, but it's always interesting when like people that go missing, their family usually have like a hunch, like a gut feeling of like, no, I feel like they're just no longer with us. But it's it always is. interesting to me when they think like, no, I think she's still alive. Because I that I would that would I would think in my head like that would never be my assumption. I'd be like, oh great they're dead like yeah and like the fact that he said she could have just had a mental break or something but if which never... again it's like the 60s mental illness was not right, a that's thing. not anyone's radar and if she had never had any obviously it could have been but i would think if she had never had a history of that and it's 60s i wouldn't think that the husband would like just jump that. to that immediately yeah i mean who knows if it was immediate whatever but I don't know. It's interesting versus him just being like, yeah, like I think somebody did something to her. Like that's fine, that person. You could also say that he was just overcome with grief and he was just holding on hope that his wife was still out there. Yeah. That the mother of his two children was, was out there. Maybe that's the only way he could cope get with through it. it. That's yeah. true. So Martin Reich died in 2009, never knowing what really happened to Joan Reich. 
And if anyone has ever read Gone Girl or watched the movie, this story also seems to fit. The synopsis, if you haven't heard or read or seen Gone Girl, is in Montana, there's a former New York-based writer, Nick Dune, who plays, who's played by Ben Affleck, and his glamorous wife, Affleck. Amy, who's played by Rosamund Pike, and they present a portrait of a blissful marriage to the public. However, Amy goes missing on the couple's fifth wedding anniversary. Nick becomes the prime suspect. The resulting police pressure and media frenzy causes the Dune's image of a happy union to crumble. And then it goes into, you know, questions about who they are and who they truly are. Although in several interviews, writer Gillian Flynn said that she was actually inspired to write the novel by the disappearance of Californian Lacey Peterson in the late 2002s. I guess not really related. 2002s. Yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> only one 2002. <laughs> well, there's two, 2002. Two, zero. 2020. I don't know. Ah. So this case continues to invoke a lot in people, whether it's sheer mystery or if it's just that terrifying fact to think that anyone out there at any time could be having the most mundane, ordinary life and it could end in a disappearance. And then my neighbors wouldn't ask me if I'm okay. Yeah, mine would. Yeah, they should. You need to get out and talk to your neighbors, girl. Well, I live on a busy enough road. I think if I walk down the street, I guess the road she was on was very, like, desolate. But it was next to some more busier roads. I don't know. That's the scariest part to me is, like, if people saw me and they're like, oh, yeah, I saw her fucking bleeding everywhere. They're like, oh, what'd you do? Like, nothing. (laughs) Made a sandwich. That is, yeah, yeah, that is pretty scary. Damn. If you'd like to learn more about this, check out the following books about this unsolved case. Number one is The Disappearance of Joan Reish, which was published in 2018 by Jesse Gomes. This one's free from Amazon. If you have Kindle Unlimited, check it out. The second is A Kitchen Painted in Blood, The Unsolved Disappearance of Joan Reish, published in 2020, which is a lot newer, by Stephen H. Ahern. And this one uses extensive police case files and hundreds of newspaper articles gathered that were written about the disappearance to explore the story of Joan Reish and the investigation into her disappearance. It states in the synopsis that with the assistance of former FBI criminal profiler and L.A. cold case detective, this book reports previously undisclosed facts from the investigation, including multiple witness statements. Also evaluated are the numerous theories, and we just touched on some of them, on the disappearance ultimately revealing a possible explanation of what could have happened to Joan Reach that fateful October afternoon. And the third book that you should definitely check out is Masquerade, the Joan Reach Cold Case, which is a cop's perspective published in 2020 by Michael C. Bouchard. And it takes a look at the cold case from a cop's and author's perspective, if you didn't get that from the title. (laughs) The book is based on the original 5,157-page police case file. That's so interesting that there's been, like, all of these are from the past, like, three years. Yeah, I think there's been a a surgence in cold cases, probably, because more of the information is now accessible, easily accessible to people. I mean, I guess that's the case with, like, most cases, right? Like, they're all researched lately, but but books, I mean, I don't know, it's pretty interesting yeah so that's our book club picks of the week (laughs) the big question almost six decades later that haunted martin the investigators and pretty much all who know about this case is what happened to joan did she leave voluntarily did she plot to abandon her life and start afresh was it an unintentional injury or was there something more sinister happening in massachusetts was she a victim who was attacked and kidnapped this case is one of new england's biggest mysteries in the 20th century To this day, Joan Reish's case remains unopened and unsolved. From doughnetwork.org, 
Joan Reach's Disappearances Case File 646-DFMA. If you have any information about the disappearance of Joan Reach, please contact the Lincoln Police Department at 781-259-8113. And that's all we have for you this week. That's it. Kind of long, but kind of good, right? Very interesting. Honestly, these are the most frustrating cases, but these are my favorite. These are the most frustrating because I just want to know what happens. It's all you want to know, and it makes you so freaking annoyed, but like obsessed. And yeah, these are my favorite kind of cases. Anyway, that's it for episode 55. You can check out our Instagram to see some photos. I don't know if we have any. Well, we can post her photo. Yeah, her photo. Maybe like because yeah, we were saying that pretty much all the women in the 60s had the same hairstyle, <laughs> same lipstick. So what are they going to say about stick. 2020 era? Like, are they going to say um, everyone was just wearing crop tops? Everyone had space buns? Like, well, I wonder what they're going to say. Because there is a like distinct style of photo from the 60s of women. I, well, you know what it's going to be? Because their their pictures were just like pictures and ours are all going to be selfies. Oh, right. Maybe that's what it'll be. Yeah. Ring lights. Everything's going to have the ring light around it. I mean, they're going to look good. <laughs> At least we'll look good when we're missing. Am I right, ladies? Yeah, maybe they'll be able to find us easier. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, Killer Babes Podcast. Check us out. Email us, killerbabespodcast at gmail.com. And Twitter, Killer Babes Pod. Yeah, That's all we've got. Before we leave, real quick, we are going to play a quick promo for you. It's from our friends at the Stolen Podcast. So Yay. check them out. They have Instagram. They have Facebook. They have Twitter. We'll link it in our bio. Pod friends. Yes. So Love here you it. go. Hello and welcome to Stolen From Me by Lindsay, a true crime weekly podcast and YouTube channel. I've covered such cases as Molly McLaren, Susan Kappa, and Gemma Hater. Each week, we take a look at each individual case and try to bring as much awareness to it as possible. You can find me on all your favorite podcast platforms and YouTube at Stolen From Me by Lindsay. Thank you and see you all soon. Goodbye. We'll be back next week with episode 56. You do not want to miss it. Trust me. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.